Waiting is perhaps one of the hardest things that we do as human beings. Waiting is just seems to be a part of our life. We wait for doctor's appointments. We wait for results. We wait for uh, promotions. We wait for Christmas. We wait for many different things. And in the waiting, there is much that we can learn and ways that we can grow. Perhaps one of the most significant times of waiting in any family's life is the nine months of pregnancy in which a family awaits the arrival of a new life and a new addition to their home. And there's much that we have to do in that process in preparation for that child to arrive. There is much that we can do in preparing our homes. There is much that we can do as as prospective parents to prepare our hearts to be able to shepherd well this little child that God is going to entrust to us. Along the way, there are many different signs of the progression and the healthy progression of the growth of that child as the mother's body begins to change, as test results come back and tests are taken and scans are done. And with each passing week, there is another sign. There's a a kick here, a heartbeat there. There are changes and transformations. But there comes a point when the waiting intensifies and becomes infinitely more urgent. It's that moment when the labor pains begin, when the water breaks, and that waiting intensifies because we know that the arrival of that child is now imminent, and it is inevitable. That child is coming into the world, and when that time comes, it's not a time to lollygag and drag our feet and figure out what it is that we need to do. Instead, there's an urgency to action in this moment because the life of the child and the life of the mother are at stake. As we have been studying through the minor prophets, we have seen others, Joel in particular, reference the coming of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day that would mark the arrival of God among His people and in the world. And the day of the Lord is one that is characterized by both judgment upon sin and wickedness and salvation of God's people as He works. Zephaniah picks up the proclamation of the coming of the day of the Lord, but he does so with a sense of urgency that none of the rest of the prophets have. Because Zephaniah understands that he is only generations away, maybe a couple decades away, from God's judgment coming upon Jerusalem. He knows that the day of the Lord is imminent and inevitable. The labor pains have begun. The water has broken, and so his mission is to proclaim with great urgency to the people of Jerusalem and Judah, get ready. Get ready now. Be prepared for the arrival of the Lord. If you have your Bibles open to Zephaniah, look with me at the beginning of chapter 3. Zephaniah declares to Jerusalem... Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. 
Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept corruption. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I would remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, your word is true. Your character is pure. And we are fragile and fickle people who fail again and again to properly reflect your glory and your majesty. We are people who need your grace. We are your people who need your presence. We are people who need to be purified. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that the punishment that we deserve was placed upon the one who didn't deserve it. Your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that his righteousness is made available to any and all who will seek refuge in him. So may we be a people, Heavenly Father, this morning who know the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ and are not afraid to look into these words which confront us with our weaknesses, exposing our sins, displaying your character, that, Heavenly Father, we might look to you to be purified because you and you alone are capable of such by your grace. So guard us, guard me. Holy Spirit, take this time that you might receive all of the glory and the honor and the praise. Amen and amen. If you take notes in your Bible, and I encourage you to, I would encourage you at the beginning of the book of Zephaniah, if you have a top margin somewhere, 
to make note of two other passages of Scripture that if you really wanted to understand in depth what Zephaniah's ministry, what shaped Zephaniah's ministry, I would encourage you to write in the top margin 2 Kings chapter 23 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. 2 Kings chapter 23 and Deuteronomy 28. Because the opening verse of Zephaniah tells us exactly when Zephaniah ministered. When he prophesied, we actually know more about the history of Zephaniah than we really do anyone else. And Zephaniah's ministry, again, we said earlier, he's preaching with a sense of urgency, preparing the people for the arrival of the Lord, and the message of his book is simply this, be prepared for the arrival of the Lord. Because the Lord is coming and he is, his arrival is imminent and Zechariah know, I mean, Zephaniah knows this because he is ministering during the reign of Josiah. 2 Kings chapter 23 talks about the reign of Zo- Josiah. For veteran Bible readers, you will remember Josiah was the boy king. His father was assassinated. His father and grandfather were wicked, evil kings. His father was assassinated, and he came to the throne at eight years old. Eighteen years into his ministry, he sent... Um, workers into the temple because the temple was in disrepair and he started repairing the temple and in that process the priests discovered the book of the law that had been lost potentially for centuries had been set aside and ignored and Josiah and his courts began reading the book of the law Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy and were radically shaped by the character of God displayed there, as well as the promises and the warnings of God. And so Josiah began a radical reformation of the religious institutions of his day. And he began purging the land of the pagan practices that had been implemented by his father and his grandfather and other wicked kings. The people of Israel had grown accustomed from king after king after king to the very presence of of altars to false gods being inside the temple. Not on a hill on the other side of a valley, but there were Asherah poles inside. There was a a brothel for cult prostitutes on the temple mount. There was all kinds of pagan practices, altars on the roofs and, and pagan practices all over the place. And Josiah began tearing all of that down. As he purified the people in their worship. And his reforms were fueled by the discovery of the book of the law. Zephaniah, because of his genealogy that we see in verse 1, was most likely a member of Josiah's royal court. Because his great-great-grandfather was Josiah's great-great-grandfather. They are cousins. So Zephaniah is part of the royal family, though not in line for the throne. And so Zephaniah, being a part of this court and being exposed to the book of the law, is moved and motivated in the same way that his cousin is, and so he begins to preach and proclaim by the will of God as a prophet the same message, and he helped bolster this young king's reform. But still, As bold as Josiah's reformations were, they were not enough to either dissuade the people from their 
pagan practices or sway the Lord from the judgment that comes against them. Perhaps the most heartbreaking, some of the most heartbreaking verses in all the Old Testament are 2 Kings 23, 25 through 27. Speaking of the boy king Josiah, the author says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Do you now understand the urgency of Zephaniah's message? Despite all of the coming reforms, they had been told, this is good and you should do this, but it will not change God's mind. And so he is urgently proclaiming the people, be prepared for the arrival of the Lord. Be prepared for the day of the Lord. And in preparing them, throughout his book, he declares what is going to happen when the Lord arrives. In the arrival of the Lord, God's arrival, first and foremost, confronts his people in their sin. The arrival of God always confronts our sin. God always wages war against our sin. In the verses that we read in chapter 3, Zephaniah begins with a prophetic woe, a warning against the people because they are rebellious and they are defiled before the Lord. We see in verse 2 that the people who are supposed to be dependent upon the Lord, they no longer listen to any voice, let alone His. They accept no correction. They do not trust in God. They do not draw near to Him. Instead, they are running after other gods. They are engaging in other practices of pagan worship. God condemns this most clearly in chapter 1 when He begins exposing the false prophets and the remnant of Baal in verse 4, that he's going to overthrow them. And especially verse 5, those who bow down on their roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom. All of these people in their individualistic, pagan practices where they are worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. They set up shrines and altars in their own homes, forsaking the temple of the Lord, which is where God had called them and shaped for them and provided for them to worship in His presence. They have abandoned that and they have instead, at that particular place, they have adopted other pagan practices. In chapter 1, he says, I will punish chapter 1 verse 8 and 9. I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. That sounds really weird to us. But what God is saying is that if you'll remember in the book of the law, God had given very particular instructions in how his priests were to adorn themselves to come into his presence. Very particular uh, instructions on the ephod and the hat that they were required to wear. They were not allowed to come into God's presence without a hat on their head. And yet, in the midst of this, God's people have begun, there are priests gathered in that presence in the attire of foreign God's priests. Gathered together, intermingling with one another. 
And when they come into God's presence, they have this practice of jumping over the threshold. That was a superstitious practice that was used by the Philistines. There's this really hilarious story in the Old Testament about the time that the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the temple of their god Dagon. When they went home and they went to bed, they showed up the next day and this giant like 15, 20 foot tall statue of Dagon had, had fallen and was laying flat on its face in front of the altar or the, or the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They picked it up and they put it back. This very, the next night, the very same thing happened and Dagon fell down again, but this time his head fell off. And when his head fell off, it landed on the threshold of the temple of Dagon. And from that point forward, the priests refused to step on the place where the decapitated head of Dagon had fallen. Now they are doing the same thing to the temple of God. Skipping over the threshold as they are adopting the pagan practices around them. And in their pride... They have embraced this plague in pluralism. They have rejected the Lord. And they have actually become just like the nations that they despise. Chapter 3, God condemns the, the Ammonites and the Moabites because of their pride. In chapter 3, verse 8, they've made boasts against the people of God. Verse 10, the Ammonites and the Moabites, they shall be, this shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. But then also against the Assyrians, chapter 3, verse 15. This is the exultant city that lives securely and said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. And the people of God have embraced this same pride and arrogance. And this pride and arrogance and this wickedness have corrupted every level of their leadership. Chapter 3, verse 3 that we read, her officials, her judges, her prophets, her priests, all of them have embraced sin. And according to chapter 1, none of them care. Because God says in chapter 1 that He is going to come. And He's going to come against those who are complacent. Chapter 1, verse 12, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They don't care that the worship of Yahweh has been corrupted. They don't care that their judges are wicked and evil. They don't care that the poor are oppressed and the lame are cast aside. They don't care that babies are being offered to the flames of Moloch just on the other side of the hill from Jerusalem. They don't care and they don't believe that God is going to do anything. And God says, when I come, I'm going to confront this sin. I'm going to confront your pride. I'm going to confront your arrogance. I'm going to confront the things that you have used to dilute the worship of the Almighty God. Because you have adopted the practices of the world around you and brought it into my house. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful and ask ourselves, what are the ways that we might do the same? There are many innocuous and even good things that happen in our culture that deserve to stay in the culture. That door in our Christian ethics and principles and convictions, they go that way. 
And it is a unidirectional door. And we must guard against bringing anything from the culture in here to then shape our hearts and our minds and the ways that we might choose to approach the Lord. We must be careful to think well through the practices that we engage in and find what we do. Is it rooted and anchored in Scripture or is it rooted and anchored in the world? And if it is rooted and anchored in the world, we are things that we can take from the world and we can redeem by the gospel and we can put here, but we can't take those things and elevate them to the level of biblical commands. For example, why do we worship? Why is 11 o'clock the most popular hour in America for people to gather to worship. Because 150 years ago, everybody had to get up and milk the cows first. And then they had to load the family up in the buggy and they had to drive to church. And so nobody could get there until all the morning chores were done. And then they got there and it was such a big issue to get there and then get home that everybody potlucked and had a lunch on the ground. And so Sunday became a normal kind of a thing. They did what was convenient for them. There's nothing holy about the 11 o'clock hour for worship. In the New Testament, they most likely worshiped on Sunday nights. Because in Jerusalem, Sabbath was everybody's day off. Saturday was everybody's day off. Everybody went to work on Sunday morning, and they showed up on Sunday nights after a long day of work. And they fellowshiped, and they devoted themselves to one another and to the teaching of the apostles and the breaking of bread and so on and so forth. Cultural practices such as attire and even some of the, the cultural practices of, of attitudes and actions that we bring in, we have to be careful and make sure that we don't take good things in the world and elevate them to great things and God things in here. But also, I think even more hits home, how often do we acknowledge God here with our lips and ignore Him every day the rest of the week? God's people here are condemned because they don't seek the Lord. They don't acknowledge His presence. They live lives of prayerlessness. And prayerlessness is a plague in the church. Prayerlessness is a plague in individual lives. Prayerlessness is a plague in corporate lives. As we come and we talk at God all day long, very rarely do we sit in the presence of God and hear and listen. We must guard ourselves against our own tendency toward pride and sin because God, God's arrival will confront our sin. But God's arrival also displays his character. In verse 5, the Lord, said, the Lord says, The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. If the sun doesn't come up, nothing grows. If nothing grows, we can't eat. If we can't eat, we die. But God proves his justice and his righteousness and his faithfulness in the fact that each and every day the sun comes up again and again and again and again. God shows forth his righteousness. God shows forth his justice. He establishes it right here. The Lord within Jerusalem, with all of this injustice and all of this unrighteousness and all of this rebelliousness and defilement happening around them, within, that's happening around the Lord who is righteous and does no injustice. And that is an anchor for what we're going to see next. Because God is not just righteous, God is also faithful. Verses 6 and 7, God is giving a record of all that He's done on behalf of His people. 
As they conquered the land, as they came in, God said, listen, I eradicated nations and cities to establish you. I proved myself faithful to you again and again. And there are entire cities that no longer exist. And I thought that that would be enough to convince you I'm on your side. And I will fight for you. And I am here for you. But apparently he was wrong. God has proven himself not only righteous, he has proven himself faithful. And God is also just. End of verse 7. All the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me. Most often in Scripture, when God encourages us to wait for him, that's a really positive thing. He wants us to wait upon the Lord. Because he's bringing blessing and he's bringing his promises. But right here, there is an ominous tone to this. God said, all of her deeds are corrupt. Therefore, wait for me. For in the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, so that I can pour upon them my indignation and all my burning anger. And for in the fire of my jealousy, all of the earth shall be consumed. We aren't comfortable with language like that. Perhaps if you're a guest here and you attend another church regularly, even in this church, it's not a topic that we like to talk about all that much when we talk about God's anger. But the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we can't have God's love without God's anger. We can't have his love without his wrath. We cannot have his love without justice. Because the flip side of love is hatred. If I love my wife and my boys, I hate anything that would harm them. If I truly love my wife and I love my family, then I know that the single best thing for them, and she knows the single best thing for our family, is my complete devotion. And therefore, her jealousy, that I would have eyes for her and her alone, and not engage in extramarital affairs, emotional affairs, or anything else, is an expression of her love for me and for our family. God's wrath against sin is an expression of his love. And we may not be particularly comfortable with that, but it's necessary. Tim Keller urges American Christians to not end up in this place of cultural arrogance in which we epitomize, lift to the highest places, the sides of God that we are comfortable with. We live in a world that loves grace and mercy and love, and we love the affection of the Lord, and we think of ourselves as so much more advanced. But if you go to other parts of the world, a God of love and just, or a God of love and mercy, that's crazy to other cultures in the world. Because the idea that God is just, and full of wrath against evil is essential to their understanding of God. We have to know that if God is real, He is going to do something, that He does do something against evil. 
And a God who would forgive the most wicked and evil people in the universe, that's not a God that I can understand. But what Tim Keller points out is that that is exactly the sign. The fact that there are parts of God that we don't like in America, and those same parts of God that we love are the parts that confuse people in other cultures, is proof that God is who he says he is. Because if there's any one culture that God conformed to, he couldn't be God. But if he's truly God, then he is going to rub up against the rough edges of every culture across the world. And Zephaniah wants the people to know and he wants us to know that because God is loving, God will come and not only confront our sin, but bring his justice to bear. And we see that throughout this, even at the very beginning, he, the, the the prophecy begins, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. The rubble with the wicked, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. We see again the portrayal, the poetic portrayal of the day of the Lord in that creation language. We talked about this back when we saw Joel. What we see in verse 3 is the reversal of creation. In creation, God made the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the earth, and last he made man. But here in verse 3, he says, I'm going to sweep away man and beast and birds and fish. God is taking the world that he has created and that we have corrupted, and he is purging it by his justice. Reversing creation in a display of his justice. We must be people who seek, as God encourages us, in the face of his justice, who seek him. Chapter 2, verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. That seems so foreign to us that we would run to the very one who has just declared that he is destroying everything. Why would we run to and not from that God? It's because in that God is refuge. This old 1980s movie, um, Hunt for Red October. In Hunt for Red October, Sean Connery plays a captain of a Russian submarine, and he and his leaders are trying to defect, and it's a mysterious issue. And there's one man, Jack Ryan, who realizes what's going on, and so he, he gets to um, the, the captain because he wants to avert a nuclear war with Russia. And when they get finally to the ship, the, the, the height of the movie is the fact that they have been discovered by a Russian submarine that wants to destroy them and stop them from defecting because Sean Connery's character is bringing this, this a beyond state-of-the-art the nuclear sub and giving it to the Americans. And they're going to attempt to sink it. And there's a moment when they launch a torpedo at the Red October, and Sean Connery is the captain of the boat, you know, er, er, orders that they turn the ship around and they go straight towards the torpedo that's barreling towards them. And everybody on the boat is freaking out because, wait a minute, you're going towards the very thing that is sent to destroy us. And he sits kind of smugly in his chair watching the clock and having this conversation because he knows that there is a timer on that torpedo. And that timer on that torpedo won't arm it until it gets to a dis certain distance where it's safe from the other sub. And if he hits that torpedo before it's armed, his boat's a whole lot bigger. 
and it just crumbles to pieces. Dings off and does nothing. As counterintuitive as it was, towards the danger was what was safe. As counterintuitive as it is to us today, towards this God who is just and will do the right thing is the right way. That God will not only display his character, God's arrival also purifies his people. The arrival of the Lord is very bad news for certain individuals. Those who remain in their rebellion against the Lord will experience all of the darkness that he shows and declares in this book. But that same day of the Lord which brings judgment upon the wicked and destruction upon the evil is the day that brings deliverance upon those who have trusted in and sought after God. Just like that mother goes into labor and that day of the baby The day that the baby arrives is characterized by pain and sweat and screams and bickering and fighting and insults and all kinds of other stuff. That day is also filled with life and joy and happiness. And the day of the Lord is very much the same. The flame of God's indignation and jealousy that consumes the earth in verse 8 is the very flame that brings forth the transformation not only of his people but the nations themselves. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 8 and 9, God says he is going to gather nations, assemble kingdoms, pour out his indignation and his burning anger and his jealousy. The earth will be consumed, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a, spure, pure, to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, that's Egypt. From the four corners of the earth, I will bring people together. And in my justice, I will purify them. Such that there will be no more foreign tongues. We see right here an anticipation of the reversal of Babel. Remember at Babel, all of the men came together. The people came together with one common tongue. And in their pride, they decided to build a monument to themselves. Up and high into the heights of the heavens of God. And God came down and as an act of His judgment, He cursed them by giving them different languages such that they could no longer communicate with one another. He humbled them and they dispersed over the ends of the earth. But the promise right here is that one day God will gather the nations again and He will reverse the curse of Babel and we will have a purified speech and a purified tongue and we will be united in the presence of God. Why? Because God will purge our wickedness from our midst. Verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your ex- proudly exultant ones. And there shall no longer be ha- you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. 
God is going to purge the wickedness. He is going to purge the wicked and the evil from the face of the earth and leave nothing but a purified people. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no justice. They shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. God will purge the wicked. God will purge the evil. God will purify his people. And in purifying his people, he will bring his presence. And his presence assures and restores their peace. Because when the evil is gone and the enemy is defeated and the people are purified and made righteous before the Lord, they are then able to embrace the very promise that we love to talk about in Psalm 23. They shall lie down and graze and none shall make them afraid. Why? If you continue reading in, verse, in chapter 3, you'll find it's because verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by you his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The book ends with a powerful call to purified worship. After God has purged the wickedness, after God has purged the evil, and these impure, defiling, religious, pagan practices, as he burns it all the way to chaff, the only thing that will be left is pure, unadulterated worship of God. As he lives in our midst, and as we respond to him as he deserves. And so Zephaniah declares to the people of his day and to you and to me be prepared for the arrival of the Lord. The truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, we are in another period of waiting. The time in between times after the arrival of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the promise of his return. And that return, Scripture says, is imminent. It could be any day and any time. And the urging of the New Testament and the urging of the Christian Scriptures is don't grow weary in the waiting. Don't grow distracted in the waiting either. Yes, there are a lot of signs talked about in Scripture but brothers and sisters, please hear me. Don't let the searching for signs characterize your life. Let searching and serving the Savior characterize your life. And let God worry about the signs. Searching for signs is just another exercise of our pride and our haughtiness to be in control. Because if I feel like I can figure out and read the stars in the sky and the blood moons and everything else, then I will be at peace. The only peace comes in Jesus. The only way that we can be prepared for the arrival of the Lord is if we are prepared by the Lord for the arrival of the Lord. There's a lot that we can do to prepare for the arrival of a baby. There's a lot that we can do to prepare for a degree and the beginning of a job and anything else. But the only thing that can happen that can make us ready for the arrival of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ himself. Transforming our lives. Not anything that we do. So brother, sister, 
Friend, how might you need to rethink your status before the Lord? Because there's a lot of false narratives and lies within the church that seems to anchor my relationship with the Lord based on my family history. Of course I'm a Christian. My parents took me to church. My grandparents were Christians. There's a lie that says my identity and my relationship with Jesus Christ is tied to my cultural identity. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm a Southern American raised in the Bible Belt. Of course I'm a Christian. There's a lie that says, of course I'm a Christian. I was baptized. I'm on a church roll somewhere. I don't know where, but I'm on a roll somewhere. None of those are substitutes for the work of God's grace inside of us, accomplished by God's grace upon us through Jesus Christ. And the invitation is to be prepared. Not in anything that you do, but in simply seeking the Lord, seeking righteousness, seek humility. And posture yourself in front of the only one who can prepare you for his arrival. Run to him and not towards yourself. And trust in the God who is good, the God who is faithful, the God who does no injustice. Entrust yourself to him today. By turning towards Jesus Christ, who endured the day of God's wrath so that we don't have to, and whose only expectation is an invitation to come to Him. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. And He'll do everything else. Would you trust in Him today?